Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Museum of Communist Terror. The museum aims to keep alive knowledge and understanding of the terror that took place under communist regimes primarily in the 20th century. We create videos, briefs and materials for schools and the ultimate aim is to create a physical museum in Britain. For more details of the museum and its activities, please see the website www.museumofcommunistterror.com where you can subscribe to get occasional updates on developments and events. Please also see the Facebook page or the Twitter feed at Communist Terror. This talk was given at an event in London by the historian Roger Morehouse. His book, First to Fight, is about the invasions of Poland in 1939, first by Germany, then by the Soviet Union. In this talk, Roger concentrates on the less well-known invasion by the Soviet Union. Uh, thank you very much for coming. Um, a, a word about James's venture on uh, the Museum of Tom Communist Terror. I think it's an absolutely brilliant venture. Um, hugely needed and uh, just to echo what he said uh, do at least subscribe and, and keep abreast of what, what's going on and if you, if you possibly can you know, help out and, uh, and financially uh, he'll help out as well. I think it's a, it's a vitally important uh, project. Um, rather like uh, Poland in 1939 I have to face in two different directions uh, this evening. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, hopefully, we're, we're in a small enough space that it, uh, it, it, should, it should be fine. We don't threaten you. No, that's true. I'm not feeling threatened at the moment, so that's, that's good. Um, now, it's an interesting book, this one. I, it, it sort of came out of the last book, The Devil's Alliance. The Devil's Alliance obviously covers 1939-41, so the period of the currency of the Nazi-Soviet Pact, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, um, which, as we've said, is a massively under-understood, misunderstood. I wouldn't even say misunderstood, because we just don't, we know nothing about it. Um, and when I was writing that book, my son at the time was going through his GCSEs. And just out of interest, I looked at his, uh, his um, uh, coursework book um, and looked what it said on the, uh, on the subject of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. And this is what, you know, our kids are learning at 16. Um, and on the Nazi-Soviet Pact, it had literally five lines, which was, you know, essentially that Stalin was uh, defensive and was holding Hitler off you know, making whatever deal was possible so that he didn't have to enter World War II, right? Uh, which is absolute nonsense. But this is the dominant narrative, and this is the narrative Stalin gave, right? So our history books, in that example, in that example, our history books are parroting Stalin's propaganda from 1941 onwards, okay? The real reasons for the Nazi-Soviet Pact are rather different. There's a collusion of interests between Berlin and Moscow, which comes to fruition in 1939. Of course, they're, they're not ideologically aligned, but they're strategically aligned, not least because they're both revisionist powers. They both want to tear up the Treaty of Versailles. They're both revolutionary powers, of course. Different ideologies, but they're both revolutionary. So they're both happy to see the world burn. They're both happy to see warfare erupt again on the continent of Europe. And that's as much the Soviets as the Germans. Let's not forget. The Soviet Union had come to power effectively on the back of the maelstrom and the slaughter of the First World War. Lenin himself said that warfare was the, was the midwife of revolution. And using that logic, carrying that logic forward to the Second World War, Stalin and his acolytes in 1939 see the possibility of war in Europe 
as unleashing all of those same forces that brought communism to power in Russia and saying, and the idea is if we can help that happen, if we can ferment that, we can get Germany fighting the Western powers, the result will be the communization of all of Europe, which is what they wanted. Bear in mind, of course, that communism comes to power in, in Russia, in the Soviet Union, in an anomalous way. This was supposed to happen through proletarian revolution, according to Marx. So this happened in a largely agrarian state. It didn't make sense, ideologically, that the revolution had happened in the Soviet Union. So communism actually spends a lot of its life, up until 1991, trying to make sense of itself, trying to make itself make sense in ideological terms. And the key thing was to take power in, a, in an industrialised state, which is why Germany was always so important. So they want to export it westwards. It's never just going to stay in Russia. It's always got to go westwards. It's got to get to industrialised states where it will ideologically make sense because it has a proletarian base and you can actually make the Marxist uh, ideology make sense. So this was crucial to Stalin. In 1939. That gives some sort of context to his thinking. This is not Stalin. The Nazi Soviet pact is not Stalin being defensive and holding off Hitler in some defensive manner. It's the opposite. This is Stalin being offensive against the West, willing to unleash war on the continent of Europe and using Hitler in some way as a proxy to do that. In a nutshell, that's what the Nazi Soviet relationship is based on. Having written that book, and I do recommend it to you, by the way, um, uh, I sort of realised that this, the, the chapter of the, the sort of big gap in that narrative, of that, certainly that two-year period, is this aspect of the, of the Polish campaign in 1939. Uh, and for me, it was a kind of an adventure into military history, which I'd not really done before. I'm not really a military historian. I would say that up front. Um, I, th I think I've done a reasonably good fist of the... Uh, of the military aspects of it. But crucially, it was a gap. And historians like gaps in the history. It's like catnip. We get very excited about seeing gaps in the history. So this was a very obvious gap in the history because the September campaign is one of those that usually gets passed over in the standard histories of World War II. Think of your uh, uh, Max Hastings, Anthony Beaver, and that sort of thing. In their standard histories of World War II, it gets passed over maybe in about 10 pages and probably seven of those will be the agonies of Western politicians about the decision to go to war. Right? There'll be very little actual about what happened in Poland, where, by the way, something like 200,000 people are killed in the September campaign, military and civilian. Right? So this is not a sideshow by any stretch of the imagination. It's an important military campaign. So that's motivated, seeing that gap, knowing knowing that it was a significant event, made me want to, to write the book, to try and fill the gap. Uh, so that's the sort of the background to the book. Um, now, the story we all know, we think we know, is that of the German invasion. Right? The 1st of September, uh, at dawn, the opening shots of the war supposedly, again, it's disputed, supposedly is the, the Schleswig-Holstein, rather aged German battleship, opens fire on the Polish fort, uh, fort complex at the Westerplatte north of uh, Danzig. Those are the opening, f opening shots of the war. Um, at the same time, German tanks roll across the frontier. 
a lot of them in tanks, not all of them, of course. The Germans have more cavalry than the Poles. This old stuff about, we'll come to the mythology later on. There's a lot of mythology in this stuff, basically because it's never been countered. It's never been countered by the truth. Um, Germans roll across the frontier. Uh, the Poles actually fight rather well, initially, in the campaign against the Germans. They are outnumbered, outgunned, outthought, actually, because the, uh, you know, the, you've got the military doctrine of Blitzkrieg is now something the Germans are using, not yet quite as effectively as they later do. It's still an idea that's in, it, in its infancy. It's being tried out. It's, so individual units are more sort of gung-ho, perhaps, than their neighbours, which means that it doesn't work as well as it should. But it works very well against the Poles, who are unprepared for that sort of warfare. Poles, by the way, have tanks. They're not all on horseback, like the myth would tell us. Uh, the tanks on the, on the cover of the book are Polish tanks, Polish vicars' tanks. Um, so even the cover of the book is trying to demolish that particular myth you know, that the Poles are all on horseback and all, you know, rather antediluvian and foolish because that's, you know, they're, they're fighting like Napoleonic soldiers would against a 20th century force. It's not as simple as that at all. That is German propaganda. And we're still repeating it today when we talk about cavalry against tanks. That stuff didn't happen, right? Uh, again, German mythology. So there's an awful lot of mythology there that I was trying to sort of combat and to unpack and to... And to at least start the process of inserting some knowledge and inserting some truth uh, into those arguments to try and combat the mythology. Now the greatest gap, the greatest myth even, of this whole narrative, now of course the Germans fight, the Poles fight up until the 6th of, September, 6th of October, right? 6th of October, it's a five week period, fight very bitterly against the Germans, uh, Warsaw is reached already on the, I think, 8th of September. Warsaw is besieged for three weeks itself. Uh, the front lines are very, very fractured. So already, you know, early on, the front lines are very fractured. And it becomes a war, effectively, of sieges. You have sieges up at, up at Hell in the far north. You have a, a siege at Modlin. You have a siege at Warsaw. You have a siege later on uh, at Lvov down in the southeast. So various sort of, of these sieges against, against um, predominantly against the Germans. And they finally collapse, or finally the, the, the last uh, Polish forces in the field surrender on the 6th of October. So it's a five-week period. The greatest myth within that, and there are myths and there are gaps, but the greatest one is that it's only the Germans who invade Poland in 1939. And on this, as actually in so many other aspects, particularly wartime history, but also post-war, Communism and the Soviet aspect of the story tends to get a bit of a free ride. And this, is, this comes back to this whole idea that, that James has come up with about the, you know, the idea of the, the Museum of Communist Terror. It tends to get a free ride in the Western narrative for various reasons which we can go into. But in this example, when James came to me and said, would you like to give a talk? I said, absolutely, I'd love to, to give a talk on the new book. Oh, he said, well, we need something that has a communist angle. I said, of course. You know, this is the greatest gap in the narrative, is the idea that the Soviets didn't invade in 1939. That there's only one aggressor in 1939 against the Poles. But there are two, of course. On the 17th of September, the Red Army advances into eastern Poland, 500,000 strong, 2,500 tanks, 2,000 aircraft. This is very obviously a military operation. They are given the instruction 
by Marshal Voroshilov to destroy Polish forces in a lightning strike. And yet the public narrative that was given out at the same time and subsequently was that this was a humanitarian operation. The public narrative was almost exactly the same as the public narrative that the Russians gave in 2016 when they invaded eastern Ukraine. Remember the white buses? Yes. It's exactly the same narrative, right? And Georgia, you also said... Exactly, exactly. When you look at 1939, you can almost see... This is the sort of Stalinist playbook. This is how you invade your neighbours. You dress it up in certain ways. You prepare a propaganda narrative that is completely contrary to the truth. You push it for all it's worth. You actually try and obfuscate very effectively. We talk about the propaganda narrative that they gave at the time. You obfuscate by giving out different narratives, which they do today as well. So you can see there's an absolute continuity between 1939 and, you know, as we said, Georgia and then the invasion of Ukraine uh, within our own very recent history. It's as if they found the Stalinist invasion playbook. They found it in a locked safe in the Kremlin. They've blown the dust off and they've opened it up and said, ah, well, that's how we do it. It's exactly the same narrative. So that second invasion, 17th of September, in force, invades uh, eastern Poland. The Poles are really uh, very much unprepared for an eastern invasion. Even the Polish ambassador in Moscow, uh, Václav Grzybowski, was at the time preparing a memorandum uh, where he was expecting some sort of Soviet assistance against the Germans. So he was completely unaware that this was in the wind, that this was about to happen. I don't think he was terribly well informed anyway. I mean, he was someone who, having been uh, the Polish ambassador in the Soviet Union since, I think, from memory, 1936, so through the NKVD's anti-Polish operation of 1937, through the purges, and then into 1939, he really should have been a little bit more well-informed about the sheer brutal realities of Soviet politics than he was. And that, that he was actually caught out in 1939, I think, is rather shocking. But it's indicative of a wider problem, that not many people could sort of read. We, we have this, in 1989, we had this word Kremlin, Kremlinology, of people who were trying to read what the Soviet Union was doing at the time. This was the same problem in the 1980s as people had in, in, the, uh, in 1939 as well. So it was a very difficult place to understand, to understand the politics and how things could shift. And the signature of the Nazi-Soviet pact is a vast shift from one, from one ideological position almost to another overnight. Very difficult to actually understand what's going on. So perhaps we can forgive Grzybowski for that. But he didn't even see it coming. So the Poles are very unprepared. They have all of their forces effectively in the West facing the Germans, engaged against the Germans, very bitter fighting. The 17th of September is the middle of the Bzura campaign, which is the biggest single campaign within that war, uh, which itself, that's a campaign that lasts for 10 days uh, to the west of Warsaw, uh, uh, Poles attacking down the line of the, the, the river Bzura. Um, so they're engaged very strongly in the west. And on the eastern frontier, they have basically border guards. They have what's known as the KOP, border guards, who are um, armed with rifles, limited artillery, no air cover, no armour, nothing at all. So effectively border policemen. And they are facing half a million men of the Red Army 
2,500 tanks, 2,000 aircraft, intent on destroying them. There is something of a, an air of confusion at the time, and not least because of this Soviet program of disinformation that was going on. So, the Polish forces actually didn't know initially what was happening. So they find themselves being invaded. There's a wonderful exchange which I'd like to read to you from a local KOP commander, I think at Chortkov, uh, and his superior, obviously down the line in Warsaw, was Chortkov. And uh, his name was Kotalba, the man at Chortkov. And he was told by um, uh, his superior in Warsaw that he had to send an emissary to the advancing Soviets to discover what they wanted. And he replied as follows. He said, All my battalions are fighting and two Soviet tanks have already been destroyed. I doubt whether I'll be able to fulfil the order regarding the envoy. <laughs> Undeterred, the general staff officer insisted that an emissary be sent. To which Kotaba responded, Soviet planes over Chortkov. A further demand that talks should be opened with the Soviets was met with the answer, Air raid, I must go. The next question neatly encapsulates Poland's position. Coming from the superior commander in Warsaw, it read, Is this raid by German or Soviet forces? This is Poland's position in 1939. So there's widespread confusion. Uh, not helped by the Soviet narrative of, of, or Soviet tactic of giving different narratives. So you had individual troops, individual units who would come with a truck, with a loudspeaker that would say, we're coming to help you against the Germans. And of course, if you were a KOP officer, a border guard officer, and you hear that, oh, brilliant, wonderful. Welcome our Soviet friends with open arms, at which point you're disarmed. Oh, it was a ruse. So this happens in numerous places. And this is, the, this is very much the Red Army method of warfare. Maskirovka, they call it now, nowadays. Use of, of these uh, uh, deceptive techniques, deception. They're doing that in 1939 as well. Um, there's difficulty on the, on the Polish side as well, because there are various orders given that the KOP is to withdraw, is not to engage the Soviets. I think mainly in the, the reasoning that the Red Army was seen as such an overwhelming force that it would be suicide for KOP units to try and engage them. So they are told to withdraw as quickly as they can and to go underground, which many of them do. Many of them also don't. So there are various examples of last stand defences against the Soviet invasion. Most notably at a place called Sarny, which is right in the centre of that long frontier, if you remember the shape of interwar Poland, it's a very different shape to what it is now. It's a very long vertical frontier to the eastern end of, uh, of Poland. And right in the centre of that is an area called Sarny, a small town called Sarny, and the wider area. And that's where the, the, the uh, Poles had built static defences in the 1930s. They'd done, done the same thing in various places across, particularly in the west, in the expectation of a German attack, they also, you know, they knew that the Soviets also were, were a hostile power, so they're under no illusion. And, and Sarny was an example of that. They had this plan for an eastern attack, uh, to prepare for an eastern attack. The Sarny was this one location where they had a bunker complex 
around Sani, which they defended very, very vigorously. Uh, and again, there's a, the, the example of Sani is, is a brilliant one because that was where KOP officers actually, and, and men, um, stood for three days against the Soviet attack with, as I said, no armour, no artillery, and no air cover. And they lasted for three days. And it's quite a remarkable defence until finally uh, the last bunker was cleared with, with, with Soviet flamethrowers, which is a rather hideous prospect. Um, but this gives you an idea of how bitter in places the, Soviet, the Polish defence against the Soviet Union was. In other areas, particularly uh, Lvov in the south, that becomes a siege, particularly if the Germans come initially, Germans initially invest Lvov. They get that far, they get way beyond the line that's been agreed with Stalin in, 19, in uh, August 39. Uh, that's then later invested by the Soviets and is, and is surrendered by the Soviets, uh, to the Soviets rather. But uh, in other places, particularly in the north, Grodno and Vilno, those are two places where the KOP, along with sort of various uh, reserve units, shattered units of uh, the Polish army, scouts, uh, railwomen, anyone that, that wanted to pick up a weapon, um, you have the first real examples of proper urban warfare in World War II in those examples, Grodno and, uh, Grodno and Vilno. Um, and one of the, I think Vilno is a brilliant example of this, you know, the new technology of urban warfare. You have 14-year-old scouts uh, with, armed with Molotov cocktails engaging Soviet tanks in the streets of, of Grodno and Vilno, which is quite remarkable, and very often paying for their, li- paying their, uh, for their temerity with their lives in the process. So it's quite a remarkable story. So there is, a, there is a sort of military narrative here that needs to be told, and it's never told. So whenever we talk about the September campaign, as I said, it's always brief in the, world, in the narrative of World War II. It's always a couple of pages. It's always a very Anglo-centric story. It focuses primarily on our agony about the prospect of going to war, not the very real agony that's going on in the battles in Eastern Europe. So it talks about the German invasion. It never talks about the Soviet invasion. And again, this is a victory of Soviet propaganda because the Soviet propaganda told the world, told anyone that would listen, that this was a humanitarian operation. It didn't really happen. This was something we didn't need to know about. What's, I think, interesting in this is how... what follows that military operation. So... The Germans, in many cases, had advanced way beyond the line. There was a line through the centre of Poland, which became known as the Boundary of Peace, ironically, because this was the line of demarcation between the zones that had been already delineated at the Nazi-Soviet Pact. There's a a, a secret protocol to the Nazi-Soviet Pact, signed on the 23rd of August 1939, in which Hitler and Stalin basically agreed how Poland was to be carved up between the two of them in the event of a territorial reorganisation. Territorial reorganisation is a euphemism for war. So they already had those lines drawn up. The Germans, in their zeal to defeat the Poles, in many cases advanced way beyond that line, particularly down in the south, in investing Lvov. Lvov is way beyond the, the line of demarcation. And in other cases they do as well. So they are already advancing way beyond. And when the Soviets come in, they request that the Germans withdraw. And it's interesting to look, as I do in the book, 
at the paper trail which leads up to the Soviet invasion. Because the Germans are expecting the Soviets to come in much earlier than they do. And this is the Soviets creating the narrative. It's very cleverly done. Stalin declares himself neutral, of course, as we said, the outbreak of war. He doesn't want to be personally involved. He doesn't want to be too close to Hitler. That would be propaganda suicide. Right? He's going to broadly ally himself with Hitler. He's gonna, he's a, has a collusion of aims with Hitler, not least in the, de, in the destruction of Poland, but he doesn't want to be Pol uh, Hitler's ally. That would be suicide. So he says he's neutral. Of course, he sits back, waits for things to develop. The Germans, having invaded, their forces are all engaged, are sending missives to Moscow saying, well, uh, when, when can we expect uh, the arrival of, of Red Army forces? Oh, well, not, not yet. Not yet. No, we're not ready. Uh, we haven't mobilised. Uh, the time is not ripe. Uh, it wouldn't look right. There's even a message that says, basically, it, it would be a propaganda uh, disaster for the Red Army to go in too early. So they even confess this uh, to the Germans. And then they come back and they say, well, let us know when Warsaw is about to fall. And then we'll, then we'll invade. So this is them creating the narrative. right? They're saying, and this is the narrative that they eventually give, which is that Poland has collapsed, which is Poland has been this useless state that it can't sustain itself like it never can, could sustain itself in history, 18th century, 19th century. You know, the Germans used to call it the seasonal state, and that mentality was exactly mirrored in Moscow. Poland was one of those places that was just hapless. It was absolutely useless. That was the Soviet narrative, Russian narrative. So they say, wait for Warsaw to fall, let us know, and that's when we'll come in. Right? The Germans actually send the message to Moscow on the 16th of September to say that, yes, Warsaw is about to fall. Of course, Warsaw, as we know, holds out until the 28th of September, holds out for almost another two weeks after that date, which rather embarrasses everyone concerned. But they're expecting to come in, and the narrative they give is that this ridiculous state has collapsed, and we're coming in, humanitarian mission to restore order to this collapsed state and this, this, this society in uproar, and particularly to give aid and succour to the Belarusian and Ukrainian minorities of eastern Poland, for whom this was portrayed as liberation. Right? They were being brought home, effectively brought home to Stalin's Reich, rather like the narrative that Hitler was giving up until 1939. Right? So actually that paper trail is very instructive in laying bare the creation of that propaganda narrative. This wasn't an invasion, it was a humanitarian operation, it was made necessary because of the collapse of this ridiculous Polish state and we are coming to defend Belarusian and Ukrainian minorities. This is anything but a humanitarian operation. In the first instance, just as the Germans are carrying out race war, effectively, against the German people in the West, against the Polish people in the West, targeting absolutely not just Jews, we might surmise, given our sort of tendency, I suppose, to view World War II through the prism of the Holocaust, we might surmise that the primary target in 1939 was Polish Jews. It's actually not. In a vast number of cases, the primary target is ordinary Poles, 
So POWs, civilians, it's essentially open season in the West against German forces. And a very instructive statistic that I often use to, to sort of illustrate this is if you look at the French campaign of 1940, there are two massacres of British and Allied troops uh, in 1940 at Paradis and Vormhout, which both of which are quite well known. You might, you might recognise the names. There's also a massacre of Belgian civilians at a place called Vinct. There are a number of lesser massacres of uh, French colonial troops by the SS. But the total number doesn't exceed about 20, which is bad enough, right? But compare that to the Polish campaign. In the Polish campaign, there are over 600 documented massacres by the Germans alone. So you can see that disparity is not just sort of happenstance. This is not just a statistical anomaly. There is something more profound going on. And the profound thing is that the Germans are car carrying out race war against the Poles. It's open season. These people are not worth taking care of. They're not, wor they're not worth respecting as POWs, as, as civilians. So if they cross you, if they look at you the wrong way, if you find a rusty bayonet in a pigsty, that's enough for all the menfolk in that particular village to be massacred. So it's a race war. The Soviets are doing exactly the same thing in the East. So the Germans are doing race war in the West, the Soviets are carrying out class war in the East. And you can see that from the records. And again, this is something, this is actually, I think, the first book, particularly on this subject, this is the first book that actually looks into the, the Soviet invasion of Eastern Poland in 1939 in any detail at all. Any of you want to go, and ha go away and research this and look at what's been written in English before on this subject, by all means do and come back to me and tell me what there is because there's very, very little. So this is giving it for the first time real chapter and verse and giving the diplomatic background, the correspondence between Berlin and Moscow and crucially giving the accounts on the ground from Polish POWs, those that survived, eyewitness accounts and so on. So it's really the first time to actually tell that story, which I think is crucial. As I said, we have to counter the mythology and the gaps in the history with knowledge, with facts. Lay it out so that we can no longer say, well, we didn't know about that. It's there if you want to find it. It's there if you want to read it. And this is crucial, this aspect of class war. So the Red Army is bringing revolution with it in its knapsack, as it always did, as it always did, all the way through. So the first target, of course, for uh, Red Army ire is the officer corps. So the very first thing, as soon as you have a group of, group of POWs, is separate, separate out the officers from the men. The officers would be led off, usually for some sort of interrogation, special interrogation, which in many cases ended in summary execution. There's a great example that I give of a group of soldiers who are captured at a place called Mokrany in the east, in eastern Poland. And this was the conventional thing. You separate out the officers and the men. The men are being marched away. And one of them hears gunshots in the distance. And he turns to his Red Army guard and he says, are our men still fighting? And he says, no, proudly. Red Army man says very proudly, no, those are your masters shot dead in Mokrani Forest. They've taken the officers away and on the spot they've been lined up and shot. This was very much the norm on the Eastern Front against the, against the Red Army. Um, so 
This is effectively class war. Of course, if you're a POW, you get captured by the Soviets, you learn very quickly that this is potentially your fate. So countermeasures are engaged in. And very often, officers of the, of the Polish army would tear off their insignia of rank, tear off any medals that they might have, any, any ribbons, anything that might delineate, uh, d determine you know, what their position was in the army, and they would present themselves as ordinary soldiers. Rather like the SS does at the very end of the war, they all try and pose as ordinary, ordinary soldiers. This is what the uh, uh, Polish officers do in '39 because they know what their fate will be. And there's a very good example. I'll just read another example, which actually came from the um, uh, Imperial War Museum archive. Uh, and this is from, again, I think he's actually an ordinary soldier, but it's rather illuminating because it shows how people developed sort of uh, countermeasures to try and get around this problem. There it is, right. So this particular chap, he says, I took off my distinctions, but I had my whistle, you see. And they said, ah, you're the commanding officer, because you've got a whistle. And a friend of mine, bear in mind, of course, that the Red Army in many cases didn't have boots. They had string as a belt, and they didn't have boots. They were frightfully unprepared and, and badly supplied in 1939. They weren't ready for war at all. So a man with a whistle... You've got to be in some sort of position of authority to have a whistle by, by Red Army standards. So, you're the commanding officer, they said. You've got a whistle. A friend of mine took off his distinctions as well, but he had a tailor-made uniform, so he was arrested. And we had a young chap with us who had binoculars, and they thought, well, he must be something special as well. So all three of us were taken away for special interrogation. Of course, they weren't officers, they just had kit that the Red Army wanted to have. So this kind of sums up, in a way, the, the attitude. There's a wonderful quote um, of ordinary Poles when they see the Red Army coming in, and, it's a, and, it's, and it, it rides in on sort of stunted horses, uh, and as I said, very often with sort of bast shoes, like these sort of wicker shoes almost, um, very undersupplied. Their, their, their rifles are on a piece of string, and they've got a piece of string around their belt. All, none of the um, uniforms match. And there's a wonderful quote from one of these Poles who sort of looks at them and says, this is an army of vagabonds. It's an army of ragamuffins. And compared to the Polish officer corps, which was beautifully turned out, wonderfully, as we heard, some tailor-made uniforms and everything polished and wonderful, this was an army of ragamuffins. That's, and that's how they described it. So anyone with kit, obviously, was had viewed with suspicion. But of course, if you're a Polish prisoner... You tear off your distinctions, you try and present yourself as an ordinary soldier. Aha, they have methods to get around this. So the first thing they do is to check your hands. So rather like in primary school, they get all the prisoners to present their hands. And of course, if you had calloused hands of a farm labourer, you were okay, you were working class. If you had white, soft hands like me, you were a dangerous intellectual and a bourgeois and the chances are you'd be sent off for further interrogation and or execution in the forest, a la Mokrani. There's a wonderful example as well, the commander of the defence of Grodno. I said, mentioned the defence of Grodno, which was a very bitter urban 
um, campaign of uh, only about sort of a day and a half, but it's a very bitter fight. And the commander of that particular fight, whose name was Olshina Vilchinsky, uh, general, tried to escape up to Lithuania um, once Grodno had fallen, and he was intercepted by a Red Army patrol. Uh, and again, Polish general, in all of his wonderful uniform, orders, distinctions, all the rest of it, pulled out of his staff car, taken to the side of the road, side of the road and shot in the back of the head, in front of his wife, incidentally. This was how the Red Army operated. So this is very much class war. It's also, there's also an element of almost a race war element to it as well, because crucially these are, the, it's the Poles that are being targeted in eastern Poland. And the Red Army comes in and it wants to foment effectively a civil war. So it sets up militias amongst Ukrainian and Belarusian populations and it almost implores them to go and avenge themselves on their Polish masters, on their Polish neighbours, on their Polish landlords. And again, there's a wonderful quote which I'll read you. Can find it? There we are. This happens in a place called Mashuf, which is near Kovel. A Soviet lieutenant made a speech in the main square. He called upon the people to go and take away what rightfully belonged to them and to avenge the pain of 20 years of exploitation, proclaiming, you should kill and take the property of those Poles who had filled their pockets and barns with your blood. They're actively invoking effectively civil war in eastern Poland. This is the engine of revolution. This is not a humanitarian intervention at all. This is brutal warfare followed by revolutionary warfare, revolutionary civil war. And the result, of course, as we perhaps know, perhaps you don't, is that eastern Poland is very quickly annexed to the Soviet Union. Already in October, it's effectively annexed to the Soviet Union. Uh, subsequently, reinvaded by the Germans in uh, 1941, fought over once again, Jewish populations taken out, uh, shot hideously at the time. These are the bloodlands. This is the, this is the area in Europe, you know, the name from uh, Tim Snyder's brilliant book from 10 years ago or so, Bloodlands, which is fantastic. If you haven't read it, please do. It's fantastic. And it gives the lie, really, to our rather comfortable narrative of World War II. We have a comfortable, easy narrative of World War II in which it's all about Dunkirk and D-Day and it's one of heroism and it's a one of how we win out and we're on the side of the angels and we win out in the end through our own pluck and our own determination. And it's not really a narrative of mass slaughter, ethnic cleansing, the sort of fighting that you see in this book. I don't want to put you off it. <laughs> sort of fighting you see in this book and that you see going forward in World War II because this is, this is the warfare of the Eastern model this is what happens in the East a great example some of you might know the story of Oradour in France right? you might have been there horrible story of an SS uh, again I think it was Das Reich SS unit that trundles through Oradour 
Uh, I think the convoy was shot at at some point, and they come to the village and they basically avenge themselves. And I think from memory, 600 people are killed at Orador. And it's now basically an open-air museum. Okay? It's a hideous story. If Eastern Europe did that for every case that was similar to an Orador, most of Poland, most of Belarus, and most of Ukraine would be a museum. This is the difference between the Eastern War and the Western War. That stuff happens in the Eastern War right from 1939, right from the invasion of Poland onwards, by both the Soviets and the Germans. That happens on the Eastern War every single day. It happened once in Orador, and we turn it into a museum. It happened once in the West, we turn it into a museum. That's the illustration of the difference between the war in the East versus the war in the West. And for us Brits, who think we understand World War II so well, because it's such a central part of our national narrative of how we see the world, of how we see our own place in it, we really think we understand World War II, but actually we have a very parochial, very partial understanding of World War II. And we really need to understand the war in the East better. Because I would argue that's where the essence of World War II takes place. That's the World War II of ideologically driven slaughter on both sides. Not just the Nazis, also the Soviets, and in this example. So it's a, it's a much uglier story than the rather comfortable, simple, binary, heroic narrative that we have in the West. We really need to understand the uh, Eastern War better. And my last point is just that, that this begins from day one. There's not a sort of galloping radicalisation of brutalisation in World War II, which is something, again, I think we often assume. Almost that there's a step, you know, there's a step change in 41 with the German invasion of the Soviet Union. There is, of course, because that's where the great numbers of, of, of deaths uh, you know, begin to kick in. But the brutality is there from day one. On the German side, from the very first day of the war, 1st of September, they're already massacring on the 1st of September. And the Soviets are already lining people up when they go in on the 17th of September. So this brutalisation, ideologically driven as it is, is there from the very beginning. And that's something we have to understand. We have to incorporate that aspect into our rather parochial, and I would say rather lazy, narrative of World War II. I'll leave it on that note. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Museum of Communist Terror. You can follow our podcasts on SoundCloud and you can also see videos and briefs and other information on our website www.museumofcommunistterror.com Please subscribe to the website to receive occasional updates on our activities and events.